You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. So I've been spending a lot of time at your house lately. Mm-hmm. And you have like the weirdest stuff just laying around. What, what's weird in my house? So I found this. And, Don't um, play that. I'll put it down. So it's going to sound terrible on the, <laughs> on the playback. Like, uh, you know, preparing our kids for Karate Kid or something. Um, is, which, which was that? Three? Karate Kid 3? I, yeah. Where they went, they so, went back to Okinawa. Okinawa, yeah. That's what I was thinking. It was Okinawa. It doesn't say Okinawa. It says the Cayman Islands well, on that, it. <laughs> it. That one did not come from Okinawa. That came from... Well, when did you go to the Cayman Islands? Did I didn't. you not tell me? <laughs> I didn't go to the Cayman Islands. <laughs> no, one of our friends did. Uh, and it's like, I'm sure people watching this on YouTube you have noticed that. Like, we've got the musical instruments in the background. And I love, I never say it right, but the jo- donkey jawbone. Yes, the Cajada de Burro. Yeah, because you see musical instrument, and I see possible Philistine assassination weapon. Yeah, and I think it's possible you think you're the only one who's made that joke. I, I know, but I have to make it. It's required. It's, well, it's like people saying Oki from Muskogee every time they find out where we're from. Or, you know, breaking into song. So, yeah, it's like, it's, it's funny the first time. Unfortunately, you weren't the first one to say it, is what I tell people. Um, Which yeah. is probably kind of rude. I don't know. Well, we have that propensity sometimes. I don't know. But yeah. So that is actually, it's a musical instrument. It is, um, apparently you take, if your donkey dies, you can keep part of him around and make music with him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we missed an opportunity. <laughs> we did. Several. Um, but the, yeah, you, apparently you take it out and you, I think you have to like bury it in sand and let it dry out. Basically let all the all the flesh rot off of it. The teeth just stay in, and if you bang it on the side, it rattles like a, a vibra slap for anyone who knows what that is. Um, and then you can scrape the teeth with a with a wood piece of wooden dowel or something, and get a like the huero sound out of it. Um, I think. But but you know, it's not just musical instruments you have around your house. You also have also have a collection of spiders. Well, it's not it's not a collection that <laughs> they just live here. And they're named. Well, they're, they're named, um, but only the jumping spiders. But we had Jumpy and Hoppy. I'm not sure if Jumpy moved out because I haven't seen him in a while, or I'm not sure if Hoppy killed Jumpy. Um, they were named by the, the two and five-year-old. And, but they, we just let them roam free. I mean, they eat the flies, and they don't bug us unless we bug them. Although Hoppy seems to be pretty aggressive. He did actually... The girls were, were messing with him, and one of them slid a shoe over by him, and he did jump and attack the shoe, which was pretty impressive, because I don't know what his plan was. I'm going to kill the killer shoe. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, we, we keep him around. I mean, it was kind of, we had a friend over, and, and uh, I wasn't here, but apparently she asked Mickey, she's like, I see a spider over there. Do you want me to go kill that? And Mickey's like, no, he eats our flies. And she's like, oh, I guess I didn't think of that. Uh, you know, she's just like, spider, kill it. But, it's funny because, I mean, the girls, they, they, they will point out, oh, he's out. He's not hiding anymore. And mm-hmm. I actually messed with Hoppy a little bit last weekend. And 
Oh, that's right. Yeah, you kind of moved him to safety, right? No, I was just irritating him. And so I wanted to see what he was Is that do. why he's been watching me so closely? <laughs> he's plotting your death in your sleep. The, he actually, I mean, if you if you walk over near him, he'll turn towards you. It's really kind of, well, it's almost was, unnerving sometimes. He's, he His behavior seems a little more aggressive than jumpy. He was like, had his front legs up and was doing the whole yeah. raw thing. Yeah, when he first came in the house, he was going around this one area and he kept walking back and forth. He'd walk a little ways and then stick his front legs up. And then he'd walk a little ways the other way, then stick his front legs up. So I don't know if he smelled and that there was another jumping spider in the area because they're kind of territorial. And so I don't know if he was like trying to call Jumpy out to challenge him. <laughs> but battle, a duel. But I don't think we have two spiders in here anymore. Um, so hopefully, I don't know if the girls are going to listen to this show. I'll, t- <laughs> I'll tell Mickey to skip the, the, the intro. Don't traumatize them because they're pet spider died well yeah but they're fun to observe and they're kind of cool um there's uh, there's actually we don't have them around here but there's a there's a they're very closely related to the peacock spiders no those are pretty amazing those are yeah the great colors and but there's actually if you get real close to the jumping spiders those of you who aren't terrified of them if you look the the parts that their little fangs go on um oftentimes will be either um like a really bright blue green color mm-hmm. and it's it's kind of cool to to see those and that's here we that's that's the kind we have here in oklahoma for any of our out-of-state listeners out-of-state well i was gonna say any of our uh i don't know what you call a is it still an entomologist if you're studying spiders or is that just insects i don't know yeah i'd have to look that up but i you know I, and it's, it's kind of funny to me that you and i both aren't scared of spiders given the family history with spiders yeah, I well, yeah, and yeah, our dad got a really bad spider bite, but he was bit by two spiders, a black recluse, a brown recluse and a black widow on the same day. Yeah. I was 3 years old when that happened, so it's like traumatic, so that's and, and yet we're both like we find them horribly horribly fascinating. Well, um fascinating, but also it just I mean, I'm not bothered by the right kind of spider, like a jumping spider, they they might they can bite you and you can get a mild irritation from their bite, but they're... I can attest to that. They're not going to kill you. Yeah. I'm still here. So. so. And this is the randomness. Uh, yeah, I just, it's funny to me you know, when you get to stay in somebody else's house and, and the things that they do now. And I can't throw stones about the spiders because I actually had one build a web uh, of my kitchen sink, which is usually the last light off at night. And I noticed it was catching all these mosquitoes. Like you just live there and be well, little fellow. And yeah, so uh, it looked horrible, but you know, mosquito or spider, I, I'll take the spider any day. Yep, especially if he's up there just mining in his, his own business. Well, I hoped he was. So, so anyway, um, there's a little bit more information about my house than you might need, want, <laughs> or whatever. So it makes you human. Is that's you know it doesn't make me human. I think God did that. Um, but that's who we're gonna attribute to the credit with the source anyway. If we uh I don't know. I don't think it yeah, it doesn't make me human, it's just the a side effect, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but we're gonna be talking about the Beatitudes today. Mm-hmm. And so you this is actually a topic you chose. Yes. 
because we... Because I've covered it before. Oh, so you're cheating is what you're doing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so yeah, when we were deciding on content, one of the things that, that I had, uh, that I, you know, I've covered in the past in some small groups was Matthew 5, or a good portion of Matthew 5. Because I think it's, it's very interesting. Um, and I've, you know, I've been, actually been taking a, att- attending a class at our church. It's actually taught by a, a theology professor, which is fantastic. It's rare that you actually get theology professors teaching classes in churches, which that's a whole nother topic we can cover. Right. Um, but you know, it's, it's been kind of nice because he's been talking about the different influences of the different gospel writers, their different emphases. And, you know, Matthew, a Jew writing to a Jewish audience, you know, his big deal was that the Messiah has come. And that's, that's interesting to me because there are so many ties back to Old Testament literature in the book of Matthew that you don't get in a lot of the other Gospels. Well, and, you know, because Luke also has his Beatitudes and well, Luke... a lot like as in, you know, the other three. Yeah, the other three, Yeah. But that's a lot. I mean, because to to have anything repeated in the Bible, when you think about how concise it is and the fact that it's supposed to be kind of this portable library. Mm -hmm. So if the Bible devotes space to repeating something, I I think we need to pay attention to it. And Luke has his Beatitudes that are a little different. And I think it's really interesting you see how it's distinct, not just from the fact that, that Luke is probably a Gentile, but you also, I think you see where that medical background comes out. Sure. So... It makes for some interesting fun. And I think, you know, before we get into the Beatitudes, I think we need to kind of look at, at some of the background and about okay. why, it's, why, why it's interesting. Because, number one, we always think of Jesus as being some kind of radical new guy on the scene, that his teaching is so counter to anything well, that anybody else. No, we think of him as a revolutionary. This, this, is, this is one of my hobby horses, is <laughs> the radical revolutionary thing. Um, because we think of him, particularly in America, we love revolution. Um, that's why we're here. That's why we're here. The American Revolution. Everything's a revolution. You know, new flavor of Pepsi. Revolution. Um, new, you know, it's, uh, I actually love Paul McCartney talking about how much he hated that they used that song, but he didn't own the rights to it, which is a whole nother story. story about why he didn't own the rights. Um, do we want? I guess I, Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson owned bought the them. rights. Well, yeah, and that was actually one of the things that that Paul McCartney uh, worked with Michael Jackson, and uh, early on in Michael's career, and he told he gave, he said you know here's some advice is buy the rights to popular songs and then you, then you can charge people to license them for different things, and so a few years later, uh, Michael Jackson and Paul McCartney were. We're chatting, and, and Michael's like, I took your advice, and I started buying up uh, some licensing for some songs. And I guess Paul, I don't know if Paul McCartney didn't have the money to buy them at the time, or if he didn't realize that their record label was selling the rights to the, Beatle, to the Beatles songs. And so when they came up for sale, Michael Jackson bought them, and, and Paul was like, well, whose songs are you buying? He was like, well, I bought your songs. And Paul McCartney asked Michael if he would sell them back to him, and, and Michael Jackson refused. And uh, so they didn't, okay. that was one of the big things that, co- that caused their falling out was that Michael wouldn't sell the rights back to Paul. And so where were we going? Oh, revolution. So, <laughs> but yeah. And then later on, uh, when Michael Jackson did um, let Pepsi use that, 
uh, you know, the revolution. It was Pepsi, right? I think so. Uh, it was one of the companies, and Paul's like, revolution is not about selling a new flavor of soda, you know? Um, and, and he was really upset by it, which, reasonably so. Right. And, um, but, you know, we love the idea of revolution. You know, Jesus was, you know, Jesus was a revolutionary. He came in and said things that no one had ever said before. And there are some things, yes, that he, that, that were new. But Jesus, in my mind, was a radical. And, oh man, the tornado siren just went off for a minute of our recording. I hope that didn't pick up on the, uh, on the mics. If it did, I'm sorry. It's Saturday in Norman, Oklahoma. So every Saturday at noon, tornado siren goes off for one minute on the test. Um, so I just, I heard it winding down. The joys of living in tornado alley. Yes. So we're okay. No emergency here. Not today. Um, anyway, but Jesus was not just revolutionary. He, he, revolutionary. He was a, a radical. And the difference between a revolutionary and a radical is a revolutionary brings a new idea, destroys the system, and builds a new one. A radical works to return a system to its root, to its origin. And you can see that in the way that he affirms Torah teaching and even from there, you know, talks about the whole of the law hangs on love God and love your neighbors. So, which is a direct quote from the Torah. Yeah, which is a direct quote from from the Torah. So, he is you know, he's he's a, he's a radical um but people think he's a revolutionary. So, well, and I cuz that's I, my sidebar. Sorry, we No, because I but it ties in because we're not taught the Old Testament. I I think most churches um we pull a few key stories that are great to tell kids. We we take some of the pretty verses, but to actually study through the Old Testament we don't do it. And I, I've taught at a local college and one of my first semesters teaching, I had a couple of young men who came in who told me, and this is a direct quote, I don't need the Old Testament. I just need Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so my, I took it as a personal challenge that as we would go through Old Testament lit, that they would be able to see Jesus and understand the importance. And so that's one of the reasons why even approaching the Beatitudes, one of my favorite things to do with the Bible is to take these New Testament concepts, look for the foundations in the Old Testament, and then look at things in Old Testament and see how they're built and fulfilled in the New Testament. So, you know, we find actually this, this formula of blessed is, which is fundamental to the Beatitudes mm. throughout the Old Testament. And um, there, there's a ton of verses, and I don't want to take time to look them all up, but you can look at Psalms 1.1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Psalms 2.12, kiss the son lest he be angry with you. You perish in his way for wrath was is, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Uh, 32, 1 and 2, Psalms 41, 1, Psalms 84, 4 and 5, 106 and 3, 119, 1 and 2, 128. So you get this. This shows up over and over again in the Psalms. Yeah, long before Jesus was on the scene. Yeah, this is this has been the Davidic kingdom uh, that most of this was being written. Also Proverbs, which we attribute to Solomon. Uh, Blessed is he who finds wisdom and one who gets understandings. Uh, we see the prophets using it. Isaiah thirty eighteen, blessed are all those who wait for him. Uh, Jeremiah seventeen seven, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Uh, Daniel twelve twelve, blessed is the man who waits and arrives at the one thousand three hundred and thirty five days. Obviously, that one makes no sense unless you've got context. But that blessed is 
it, it's very much a part of the formula, but we really didn't see more than one or two blessed is, blessed is he who, whatever, blessed is he who, and more than one, than one or two lines until Second Temple Lit. Mm-hmm. And Second Temple Literature, um, man, this is just a treasure trove of information for understanding the New Testament. Right. And, and just to, to give us some background, what is Second Temple Literature? Okay, so sec- the, the, the elevator pitch for Second Temple Literature. Second Temple Lit. Okay, so essentially Second Temple Lit is any kind of literature that was written during the building or the use of the Second Temple. Because we know Solomon had his temple, it was destroyed, and then Nehemiah and Ezra come back and they rebuild the temple. This is the Second Temple. So from about um, 600 years before Jesus until about 70 years after Jesus' birth. Right. So um, some of our, our biblical writings, obviously Ezra and Nehemiah fall into Second Temple Lit. Daniel definitely falls into Second Temple Lit. Mm-hmm. Uh, our New Testament, their Gospels um, may, they're kind of at the fringe because some of them believe that Mark was written before the destruction of the temple. Sure. The, Dead, uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. Dead Sea Scrolls. Paul's letters. Mm-hmm. So these things all definitely... Um, it's, it's part of our biblical tradition, but there's more than just what's in the Bible. Right. And real quick, for, the, for those of you, uh, I feel like I should touch on this, for those of you not familiar with Dead Sea Scrolls, um, th- that was actually, it was a big controversy when those were found, because were they found in the 40s? or the Yeah, I think it was the 40s. Uh, and, and when they first came out, everyone was like, oh man, we're going to find out that the New Testament, actually they're, gonna, they're saying we're going to find out the Old Testament that the church has been using has been corrupted, it's been altered, it's been different. And what they found that in a lot of these writings was largely community rules um, for the Qumran community, uh, the, the group of Jews who lived out there. Don't spit on the sidewalk. There's uh, a fine. Right. Um, wash your hands before and after you eat. Mm-hmm. Don't drink after someone else. You know, the, it was really very detailed on, on their rules. And But overwhelmingly, there's been a lot of the literature is Old Testament scrolls, and they're finding that most of the, I mean, most of it matches up with the, uh, I won't say the Masoretic text, because the Masoretic text is going to have vowels, and these didn't. Yeah, and the the Masoretic was kind of put together around 100 BC, but... Was it 100? Yeah, it's when it started being used, but then it was really finalized in the 1100s. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and so... I didn't realize it was started collecting in the yeah, 180. 100. Did I say BC? You said BC. Uh, AD. Sorry. Yeah, but what they're finding is these these oldest copies of these Old Testament scrolls. The content is still the same, and any differences are like minor linguistic differences, syntax, syntax, and things like that that don't actually change any of the the meaning. Right, and and we actually there's either all of or at least portions of every book of the Bible. For a long time, we said with except Esther. Uh, but now we know that there is, there's rumors flying about, and I want to see it confirmed, but there's rumors flying about that Esther is also in there. So that would be an amazing find because there's still, I mean, a lot of stuff was a little bit fragments and they're having to piece them back together like a giant jigsaw puzzle. Right. And, uh, and so, yeah, you got guys with, with tweezers just putting little tiny bits of, of papyrus back together. And so you may hear us refer to those as the Dead Sea Scrolls or the Qumran texts, um, those are that's the common ways you'll hear about those referred to. Yeah, and it's it's fascinating because this was a group of people who were studying Bible 
the Old Testament, obviously, at this point, while Jesus was alive. And we there's rumors that Jesus could have been a part of this group of people, that John the Baptist could have been. We don't know. Uh, there's no evidence either way. Uh, I feel like textually in the, some of the teachings, and we're looking more mainstream uh, Pharisaic teachings mm-hmm. from Jesus, not necessarily um, the the people at Qumran who may have been Essenes, but their their writings are are very radical. Right, and, and, and from what I, from what I've heard and seen, I, it seems to me that the uh, the the best guess is that Jesus was actually in one of the Pharisaic camps. Um, well, so and they call that, him Rabboni, um, the Aramaic for Rabbi. rabbi. So. Uh, yeah. A lot of times in our English, that gets translated teacher. And so, but the the point is, there's more writings out there uh, than just the Bible. And think people were still writing things at that point in time. And there's some really great books that even though they're not inspired, they they give us an understanding of how people thought, the way they wrote, how they would use language to, to present their message. And reading these things and being familiar with these texts actually give us a better context and understanding of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so um, we, we kind of have two different styles of writing there out there. One is the pseudepigrapha, and the pseudepigrapha is a collection of writings that are, um, they were probably not written by the person that claims to have written them. And I see the yeah we have children in the living room. Yeah, don't we? I apologize if uh, it sounds like my wife is home. I apologize if you hear the kids. We'll try to catch a lot of that editing. And the, they're not being abused. I promise you, they're not. <laughs> but the pseudepigrapha, uh, basically, somebody said, "Hey, I've got this great idea. I've got this reinterpretation of the text, and it's going to sound more authoritarian if I say Moses wrote it or I say Adam wrote it, because right. or Enoch or Enoch and Enoch is both." A piece of pseudepigrapha, but it's also apocalyptic. Right. And apocalyptic literature is kind of hard to define, uh, but you know it when you see it. Right. In the Bible, Daniel and Revelation are both apocalyptic literature. Basically, you have this man who is taken up into some level of heaven. He's given a tour. He's given a message, and then he interprets this message back to people. So that's kind of the crux uh, of apocalyptic literature. Mm-hmm. And. So John, uh, Enoch, and, and Daniel, very much apocalyptic characters. So, okay, so what does this have to do with the Beatitudes? Enoch. Has, I bet everyone's wondering. Yeah. Enoch actually has long list of Beatitudes, and he will go into uh, uh, Blessed Are, uh, looking for it. I had it. I always lose it. Blessed are those who adhere to her laws. They were talking about wisdom. Uh, do not adhere to perverted path. Blessed are those who rejoice in her, who do not burst into paths of folly. Blessed are those who search for her with pure hands and do not pursue her from a treacherous heart. Blessed is the man who attains wisdom, walks in the law of the Most High, and directs his hearts her way. So, so Enoch very definitely has that. Sirach, um, also happy is the man who lives with a sensible wife. Uh, that was just the one I read. I, I, I didn't mean to indict myself. Uh, happy is the one who does not uh, <laughs> sin with the tongue. Happy is one who finds a friend. So you can, you can see these as part of an ongoing tradition that Jesus incorporates into his teaching. And 
I, and I think it's very interesting because we, we don't think of Jesus as building on these other traditions. Right. And so. Well, yeah, we, we tend to tend to separate the Bible out from history and in general. And there's, you know, there's lots of tie-ins to what was going on in world politics. I mean, when you look at, you know, Esther um, was the, the, what the Persian king mm-hmm. who, uh, who, you know, if you've seen the movie 300, that's the king that that was written about. Um, if you look at, uh, you know, King David and, uh, oh, what's her name? Bathsheba? Not Bathsheba. No, Solomon. and uh, Solomon, yes. And, and the uh, Queen of Sheba. And the Queen of Sheba, yes. Uh, you know, the, these were major empires that were interacting with one another. And, and so it's, it's very interesting that we, that we try to separate out the Bible. I love um, Professor, or I think Doctor, actually, uh, Maxie Birch. He's a professor. He's a historian. And his, one of the things that he is constantly reminding his students of um, I've listened to some podcasts by him. Uh, History of Christianity is fantastic. He covers a whole bunch of, of, of information from, I think, early Christianity. I want to say he covers from, you know, basically, you know, Christianity as we started as a sect of Judaism and how we moved out of that into, I want to say, just before the Reformation. And then he covers, uh, there's this section then from like the medieval period to the Reformation. Then he does uh, American history, American church history, very fascinating stuff. If you're, if you're into that, but one of the things he talks about is whenever you're listening, uh, whenever you're studying history is we have, we're, we have the luxury of being able to take out a single topic, a single idea, a single event and go, Oh, this happened because of these factors and this and this, but the people who lived it, it was very different for them. They were just interacting with history as it happened. And a lot of the things that, that they taught, they weren't necessarily thinking, oh, well, someone's going to write about me in 2000 years. Um, but that's just, you know, history happened the way it happened. Well, and I, I think we forget that these are human beings. The, the, the glory and the beauty of the Bible is that God invited humanity to participate in the creation of mm-hmm. this book. And so you get to see their personality and you get to see the influences that their culture had on them. And, you know, with the, excuse me, uh, still fighting the allergy stuff. So I apologize. Um, my voice should hopefully be back at full strength next week. But with, with this, Jesus is using a formula that puts the Beatitudes both in wisdom literature and this idea Sirach is, um, is often quoted as, um, not authoritative, but very highly respected in mm-hmm. rabbinic literature. And there was even uh, a discussion that's recorded in the Talmud that maybe Ecclesiastes, because it is so dark and dour and pessimistic, maybe it shouldn't have been included, and maybe the wisdom of Ben Sirach should have been. Well, and that's going to take me on a little side tangent <laughs> as well. Ecclesiastes is actually one of my favorite books. It has one of my favorite verses, and that's, you know... Uh, you've heard me say this is that don't I'm going to, I'm going to butcher the quotation, but it's don't be overly wise uh, or don't be overly wicked. Why die before your time? Don't be overly wise. Why destroy yourself? The man who fears God avoids all extremes. And so to me, it's, it's really interesting that, you know, Jesus says, you know, pair that up with Jesus says narrow is the path and, and fewer those who follow it. And then, 
you know, wide is the, you know, the to to life, and then wide is the path and to destruction. There are many who you know you can go right or left and and get to the same des- destination, which is destruction. But if you're on the narrow path, you're not veering off to the right nor to the left. Um, you're really and, looking for a balanced perspective, right? But if you if you read the entire book of Ecclesiastes, it's a uh, you know for those of you who listened to our interview with Joe last week, you know it. It really is like he was talking about he had everything, had everything he wanted and he was still unfulfilled. But that's really kind of where you get down to is if you can, you know, I love the uh, following the uh, the Facebook page, Cheerful Nihilism. Uh, it's But whenever you get to the point where you realize the universe is really just superfluous in its existence and ultimately all the material things really are not going to bring you happiness it really frees up your theology in a lot of ways um to really pursue what god says and what he wants because all the other things just don't seem as important yeah sorry no no. but yeah that's my my quick pitch for ecclesiastes yeah and, and i think that that's probably the reason why it was god and his sovereignty decided this was the book that best represented him and so, but my point is that Sirach is very much uh, part of the wisdom literature tradition. And then Enoch, because it uses this formula of the Beatitudes, we're also in a very apocalyptic tradition. And so it's very interesting because when Matthew's writing about the Beatitudes, he really is putting Jesus in the role of prophet. Mm-hmm. Even the, the setting, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, well, who else goes up the mountain with the people waiting below to be taught. And we're looking at Moses and what does Moses do? He comes down with a law and he says, if you accept the law, if you expect, accept this yoke is what it was called, then you can be a part of the covenant uh, kingdom. And Jesus is really, he's doing the same thing. He's saying, if you're going to be a part of my kingdom, these are the things that are going to be expected of you and expected from you. Mm-hmm. And so Matthew's placing Jesus in this role of Messiah and of the fulfillment of promise. And he's doing this very subtly. He's doing it very, very artfully. And I think that's one of the things that we miss. So we we have this apocalyptic figure. Jesus is ushering in the day of the Lord, the end of the age, the eschaton. And I, I think that's that's one of the cool things is because he's greater than Moses because he's not just giving us the law and interpreting the law like good prophets do. He is also giving us a law that is for more than just one nation. It's for the entire world, anyone who's mm-hmm. willing to receive it. And that's what Matthew's doing. And Luke, on the other hand, he's saying, hey, Jesus is really talking about the way the world works, which is what wisdom literature is about. And which is in great reflection of Luke being a doctor. Right. So. Yeah. And, and, and you put those two together kind of really embodies the whole, all, you know, already, but not yet kind of ideas of that the kingdom is coming, but the kingdom is here. And that might have to be a whole nother episode. <laughs> Who knows? But there's, you know, there's a, this idea that, you know, there is, there is going to be a manifestation of the kingdom whenever Christ returns, that it's going to be, it's going to be fully formed here, and, and Earth will be God's dominion, Christ's dominion at that point. But um, at the same time... But it, at the same time, we are ushering that in as we live, that whenever we get to 
whenever we live, whenever we're pre- presented with an opportunity to choose uh, to treat someone poorly or to treat someone well, when we are acting out of the love of God, that we are uh, manifesting God's kingdom here. And I, and I like to think of it, you know, because Paul talks about uh, being ambassadors of Christ. I like to think of it, you know, whenever we whenever we act out um, the love of God, whenever we act with with righteousness, with acts of love and kindness, um, that in a in a sense, it's like we're we're claiming that bit of territory, and we right. are uh, establishing a little embassy there. Um, well, uh, and we're we're might be too cheesy, but go ahead. <laughs> no, but I mean, the the thing is, we're saying that even though the world in this moment might choose a different path, whatever's effective or expedient for achieving their their goals, our faith is in the way God has declared the reality to be, and so we're going to override what's expected in order to better represent our king. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, the kingdom is already here. So anytime we're taking care of someone who needs, you know, someone lost a loved one and we're comforting the morning or we're feeding someone who's hungry, we are saying that the kingdom of God, its reign is more important and, and supreme than anything that the world might demand of us or, or even neglect from us. So. Right. Which actually kind of reflects you. We were talking about uh, blessed and how we often interpret that. So, yeah, we often talk about that. It's kind of like, oh, you're blessed because you're happy. You got lots of money. You, you know, things seem to be going your way, so you must be blessed. And right. and, I, and I think that kind of goes back to specifically in the Beatitudes. We're told, blessed is, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, or things like that. That well, when Jesus says blessed, it means he's saying happy. Yeah, so. and it's not. I mean, because how can you be poor in spirit and be happy? Uh, really what's saying there is you're blessed because you have the presence of God with you. And so to be blessed, it, it isn't to be happy. It, it's not to have this wonderful, sweet time in life. It really is, is to experience the presence of God. And so Jesus is flipping the um, expected structure of society on its head. Mm-hmm. Because in that day, based on the promises in Deuteronomy, where God says, hey, if you do these things, you're going to be blessed. And if you don't do these things, you're going to be cursed. There was very much this idea that if someone is expect- experiencing some kind of down or, or horrible event in their life, God wasn't with them. Right. And so here's Jesus saying, no, God's still with you. You can be in the middle of calamity. God is still with you. And so you are blessed. And that's that's the focus that I think we need to have, not... Oh, am I happy about this? Right, and because I mean, we're human beings; we get happy about a lot of things we shouldn't. So, well, that's fair. Yeah, and not to say that the presence of the Lord doesn't oftentimes bring happiness or joy, but you know, it it's pursuing God and truth. That uh, happiness should not be our sole measure because our emotions are fickle. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, and I, Luke in his beatitude he actually includes um, a reference to laughter. And it's the only time that laughter is mentioned in the New Testament. I didn't realize that. Yeah. And now we have a couple of references in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, which Mm -hmm. is what would have been read during Jesus' day. Uh, Most of the time when the apostles or Jesus is quoting the Bible, they're quoting the the Septuagint, not the Hebrew verses. And usually laughter is kind of put down as something superfluous kind of frivolous maybe mm. well even even negative yeah um, because i don't know if you're if this is where you're going but yeah go talking about with sarah and isaac um that his name means laughter because when 
she heard what God was doing, she laughed at God's plan. And then, so it's kind of, in a way, seen as, it ha- could be seen uh, in a lot of interpretations as being something that is negative. That if you're laughing, then you're not trusting God. Yeah, and so there is this kind of baggage that comes with the word, but the one time it is mentioned positively, and so a lot of scholars believe that because this is positive in Luke's rendition, that he is referring to Psalms 126, 1 and 2, and it says, When the Lord restores the fortunes of Zion, we were like those in a dream. Then our mouths were filled with laughter, tongues shouted tongue shouts of joy and then they said among the nations the lord has done great things for them the lord has done great things for us and we are glad and this is an apocalyptic psalm mm-hmm. and this is talking about when god decides to to rejoin humanity and so luke is kind of making uh, this connection here that the laughter is an appropriate response for god mm-hmm. and so i think sometimes when we think of um Ancient Judaism, which seemed to be kind of a very serious religion. I mean, they had 613 laws to follow. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of, we kind of see them as being very strict, nitpicky, rule-abiding, somber individuals. So to bring the promise of laughter, I think, is, is significant. Right. Well, and, and on the 613 laws, <laughs> you know, I would, I would long to only have 613 laws. We have, we have more laws than that about taxes. Traffic. Alone, traffic in our country. And, you know, this was, this was not just religious laws that the Jews had. These were also civic laws as well. These yeah. were all the laws required for building a new nation out of slaves. Yeah, that's probably the, the most succinct way to put it, because, yeah, 400 years in slavery, you're completely used to having other people tell you what to do. And, and so now, how do you build a free society? Exactly. Because, I mean, if you don't have someone telling you, hey, let's bury the bodies outside a camp. And now all of a sudden you've got someone kind of holding your hand and telling you how to be a functioning adult is what it amounts to. Um, Yeah. I mean, I I guess you could I guess you could see it that way. That that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I'm not saying that they were infantile and didn't have any common sense. No, not at all. Yeah. But if they did something that displeased their masters, then there was repercussion. So I could see them being timid and uh, maybe knowing the right thing to do, but not doing it because no one gave the okay. Right. And, and that actually, uh, one, of the, one of the most important laws that I think we, we kind of miss that re- reflects the, the free nature of Israel um, versus coming out of the identity of, of slavery is the Sabbath. And that's one that you know, under under Pharaoh, you worked and worked and worked, and only free people have get to take a whole day to do nothing. And that's one of the things that's really amazing is that, you know, you take that day, and if you do anything, you're going to read some Torah. Mm-hmm. And which is another, another, th- I mean, this here, here's goes on one of my side, <laughs> side notions here. Uh, I don't know the exact word, I believe, I can't remember, I believe it's Scala is the root word for uh, school in America or in the English. And so the idea of, of education for a long time, and this is one of my hobby horses, people, education is a privilege. It is, um, you know, in, in America, we've, we, we have so much, um, so many resources. We're in such a good position that we can, ha- we can view education as a right and and I think that's good. I think that's a great place for us to be. I'm not saying we should deny education to anyone. But it's so counter to 
everything that's gone before. But yeah, but the root word um, for the Greek word that we use for school comes from a, a, a word of, of leisure. Like it's a, it, you know, if you have enough time to be sitting around philosophizing, you're, you're privileged. And that's, it's a, it's a leisure activity. It's something that you get to do because you are a free person. And that has its roots all the way back uh, in, in the ancient days. And so I okay, think... so yeah, I, I'm confirmed this. The factspeaks.com says that it comes from an ancient Greek word for free time. So yeah, and so to me, that's really cool. A uh, little etymology lesson there for you. Um, halfway from me, and then confirmed by Emily via Google. But <laughs> that's uh, but yeah, when we think about educational law, we should see it as something that's desirable and good. I mean the way that I mean the way that Solomon talks about wisdom in uh, in Proverbs when he talks about uh, when he talks about wisdom in Proverbs or talks about women in Proverbs he's off, often talking actually about wisdom mm-hmm. and so that's a lady wisdom lady wisdom so we need to we need to look at it as something desirable something enjoyable and and figure out how to get our minds to engage and grab hold of that well and, and that's that's the thing we we have neglected this. So we read the Beatitudes like a nice little collection of these are good thoughts. These are happy things to think on. And we don't stop to think about there, there's a rich tradition and history here going back to the Old Testament, flowing through the Second Temple. And Jesus just capitalizes on the understanding that's already present in his audience mm-hmm. and says, we're, we're going to take this one step further. And because my yoke is easy, my, my, my burden is light. And, and he's talking about his teachings here that, yes, there were 613 laws, and these 613 laws formed this nation of Israel that was going to provide salvation to the world. Mm-hmm. Now, once we step outside of just Israel, and we're going into world conquest of the kingdom to, to, to take over and reclaim all of humanity. Now, I feel like we should clarify... We're going to world conquest against the powers of darkness, yes. not, as Paul says, not, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. We're not saying we're going out to conquer, hurrah, hurrah, <laughs> uh, and start a war. But we aren't no, stockpiling any weapons. We are going, There's yeah. no Kool-Aid. <laughs> we are, yeah, we're talking about going after the force of darkness, sin, uh, and the things that separate humanity from God. And we're going to, at one point, we are going to have to discuss the divine worldview, divine council worldview. And how that ties in, because this is a part of the the message of Jesus, and you, we don't have to go there with, for this episode. Um, but the Beatitudes really are building on these traditions, and I think that's pretty pretty significant. Yeah, so, absolutely. Did I, you have anything? I'm sorry. I, thought I you know. Were... I I actually I'm thinking. Um, I I think as far as introductory stuff, I I think I'm pretty much. Yeah, I okay. think we're good. I think so that gives us that gives us our background on the Beatitudes then. So let's go ahead and we'll we'll take a break here and next week we'll kind of dive in specifically to the Beatitudes and kind of pick some of those apart. And we're gonna talk about what they mean and a lot of what they don't mean that some of us may have heard growing up. Um in the meantime, um if you haven't already, go check out our interview with Joe uh, Zaragoza. That was and, a lot of fun. And then um November 1st, we launched uh, the coming attractions for commentarians. Um, so go check that out if you haven't. You can find that at commentarians by searching iTunes. I don't remember all the rest of the uh, 
Or we'll also have links on yes. Raven Creek Facebook page. Yeah, ravencreek.com or ravencreeksc.com. You can find it there at the social club. It is uh, posted there on the blog. So go check that out. There's a link to Commentarians. We are very excited to have that going on. You'll also find past episodes of the Commentarians. You can check out Emily watching Cabin in the Woods and me watching uh, Moana. Which so, is a great summation of our personalities. Well, actually. it's not even just so much our personalities. I, I, I'm not much of a horror fan, but it's not just our personalities. but also kind of a stage of life I'm in because, again, two and a five-year-old, we watch a lot of Moana around. Whereas her. I have endured the horrors of having teenagers. <laughs> yes. So we'll see how that goes uh, as, uh, as life goes on. But if you like what you heard, Please hit subscribe uh, here and on iTunes. Write us a review. Uh, leave us some comments, questions. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Raven Creek SC. Um, we'll be at RavenCreekSC.com. We'll be there, and we'll be looking forward to hearing from you. And next week, we will uh, wrap up the Beatitudes, uh, jumping into Matthew and Luke. Exactly. So, thanks. Have a good one. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.